This is an ABC podcast. Hi, ladies. Just a heads up that this episode on body image deals with eating disorders. So if you think that that might be difficult for you, please go gently. And if you need any support, check out the resources in the show notes. So my thighs rub together when I walk and when I wear particular fabrics, it makes a swishing sound. I find that embarrassing because that means I have fat thighs and I don't look after myself enough to not have fat thighs. When Ladies We Need to Talk aired this episode back in 2018, it was clear that many of us really hate our bodies and our partners and our kids. That episode on body image was the most downloaded show that year. And I'd love to think that we've really changed since then. That episode got people thinking and then there's time and COVID and feminism that all helped kick our body image issues aside and we now sashay through life caring not one bit about our thighs, our bingo wings, our weight in general. Sadly, this isn't how it turned out. After the pandemic shit show that forced us indoors to spend even more time doom scrolling through obnoxiously perfect Instagram people and endlessly peering into our own faces via Zoom, well, surprise, surprise, this whole situation has had a negative impact on the way some of us see ourselves. I did a meeting this morning and I was like, your chin looks hideous. <laughs> Steinzy, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Sit up straight. You have a lovely chin, Yumi. <laughs> I just want to reassure you. But Dr Gemma Sharp is a Senior Research Fellow and Clinical Psychologist at Monash University. And she gave us some fantastic practical advice in the Body Image episode about how we can feel better about the skin we're in. The ladies team got back in touch with Dr Gemma amid COVID lockdowns, oh, unlockdowns, oh, re-lockdowns and working from home to talk about a new term she's coined as part of her research. Zoom dysmorphia is where we're noticing new appearance concerns as a result of spending time on Zoom. It's like holding up a mirror to our face while we're speaking. And in normal life, we don't have that. And what's happening is that people are noticing issues or perceived flaws about their appearance that they wouldn't have otherwise. And this has been linked to interest in cosmetic procedures. Wow. So... What they see reflected back on their computer is has led them to think, oh, maybe I need a nose job or filler or Botox or something. All of the above. So 33% said they were noticing weight or shape concerns. So uh, that's in their chin or their cheeks or their body. Then 30% were concerned about skin issues like wrinkles, pimples, complexion. And then 14% worried about their nose, about 13% their hair, and then uh, about 11% worried about their eyes. So that can be bags under your eyes, eyebrows, eyelashes. And then after that was um, lips and teeth. Gemma, what effect have lockdowns had on eating disorders? Oh, they have had uh, enormous impacts on eating disorders. So what we have seen is that people who had pre-existing eating disorders have become more severe. And we've also seen the emergence of new eating disorders during this lockdown time. Why has it led to more eating disorders? Like what is it about lockdown that seems to steer people into this kind of thinking? 
the lockdown was a very unique time in all of our lives and it meant that our daily routines were disrupted and we didn't have as much access to social supports. There was also all these anxiety-provoking messages about weight and shape on social media because of the lockdown and jokes on social media too. Also, the use of increased video conferencing like Zoom, etc., people being exposed to their appearance continually, as well as just the general anxiety that we all felt about having a new virus. Do you have any advice for women to keep them from falling down the, this rabbit hole of self-examination and criticism? Do I? I'm sorry, sorry <laughs> you. I was hoping you'd ask that question. <laughs> we haven't researched all of this yet, but I do have some ideas certainly for people to try out when they're on Zoom and not feeling happy about how they look. So they could potentially turn their camera off. They could try focusing on the person they're talking to such that it mimics um, face-to-face um, better. They could also try using uh, funny filters on their Zoom instead of the, I suppose, appearance-enhancing ones. I think we all remember that uh, I'm not a cat uh, video. I mean, that's just (laughs) hilarious. And the person who stayed as a potato for an entire (laughs) meeting as well. Like, you just just don't judge your appearance when you're a cat or a potato. (laughs) Feel free to do that, Yumi, at your next... Your next big event to come on as a potato. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that I will get paid if I do that. I'll pay you instead. (laughs) Pay me in potatoes. (laughs) Settle in, grab yourself a potato and listen to the original ladies episode on body image for some extremely relevant podcast goodness on how to A, feel better about yourself and B, just give less of a damn. I think there's definitely an obsession with scales, with a size, with a number. I don't know many women who are 100% happy with the way they look. I hate my nose. (laughs) So I have a big old South Asian nose and I always wanted a cute little white girl tiny nose. Whether it's your tuck shop lady arms, your flabby tummy or that weird face that you make when you're getting your photo taken, most of us can pick a flaw. My boots. They're too big. (laughs) They're just in the way. I used to hate my stretch marks, but I got over that. I think cellulite is another one too. When you are really slim, cellulite is something that people don't like expect you to have, but you do. You know, like my ass is covered in it. (laughs) I'm Yumi Steins. Ladies, we need to talk about body image. There's no doubt about it, we have a real problem with our own bodies. For many of us, it's all about what the scales say. The Australian Longitudinal Study on Women's Health surveyed 57,000 women. Do you want to know how many of those women who were a normal, healthy weight were unhappy with what they weighed? 78%. And three quarters of them wanted to lose weight when they didn't need to. When we asked you about your body image, lots of you said hang-ups about your weight were preventing you from fully living your life. 
I can remember, you know, being invited places with friends like the beach and saying, making up an excuse not to go because I didn't want to be seen in my swimsuit next to those particular friends who were much thinner and more tanned and sort of things like that than I was because I, I didn't want to be laying on a towel on the beach next to them to have such a direct comparison between my body and theirs. And these are some of my closest friends. When I think I became most aware of it was when I would go to have a shower as a teenager, maybe 13, 14 years old, and um, I would get undressed as quickly as possible and I would run from where I had to get undressed to the other side of the bathroom so that I wouldn't have to see myself in the mirror. I would get in the shower as quickly as possible so that I wouldn't be confronted with myself in the mirror and have to look at my own body because I just hated it so much. Somebody I really, really liked that I was attracted to in a, in a sexual way and in a romantic way and invited me over for dinner. And I immediately, in my head, thought, I'm too fat, I haven't washed my hair. And I just texted back a made up excuse that I was babysitting my nephew. Women we've spoken to for this episode say that sometimes believing that they're fat, even if they're not, makes them feel like a failure. Almost that your size determines your value in life. And for all the talk that fat shaming is bad, the person that we fat shame the most is actually ourselves. But why do we do this? We didn't have to go far to find someone who struggles with their body image. I think there is a certain privilege that comes with living in a smaller body. This is Emma. She's a friend of ours from work. For me, I've been so many different sizes in my life, from a size 12 uh, to a size 20 and all the sizes in between. And I just know that the smaller I am, the better the world responds to me. I guess it's those kind of small, tiny interactions that happen every day that don't really matter much or mean much, but it can be from, you know, someone looking at you and making a decision to sit next to you on the bus, or it can be those tiny interactions you have when you're walking through a shopping centre and the responses from sales assistants when you walk into the store and they know that there's no sizing there for you. What Emma's talking about is a concept called thin privilege, where the world actually treats you better if you're slim. We're taught that thin is beautiful. Our society is so obsessed with fitness and thinness that any deviation from the ideal body can trigger a sense of shame, a sense of failure, particularly as a woman. This is Dr Gemma Sharp. She's an eating disorder psychologist. In both my research and clinical experience, there is so much evidence to suggest that a large percentage of women across the lifespan have negative body image and want to change the way they look. Is weight the biggest hang-up that most women have? Because that's, that's sort of how it's sounding at the moment. I think from my clinical experience, it would seem that weight is something that's popping up more with um, older women and with younger women, it's more of a kind of, I suppose, global dissatisfaction. So I think possibly that might be to do with some of the influences on younger people versus slightly older people where weight was by far the most worrisome thing, whereas younger people, it's sort of they're worried about every bit of themselves. 
What? Just the whole lot? It's like you're pointing to your whole self when you're pointing to the thing you don't <laughs> yeah, like. Yeah, I think it's because maybe because there's so many things that they can change about themselves, whereas in the past it was more, well, I can control my weight or I can try to, and that will be what I'm dissatisfied with and will try to change. Fat shaming other people happens, as we know, but are we constantly sort of fat shaming ourselves? Definitely. Um, We've got this thing called fat talk that uh, women often engage with, with their friends and colleagues. It's almost taboo to actually be happy with how you look. So fat talk and fat shaming is a way of sort of going, I'm like everyone else. I'm dissatisfied with how I look and I want to change it. So fat talks when you're like, oh my God, I'm, I, my thighs are so big today or something exactly. like that. Exactly. My bum's too big. It's basically just expressing dissatisfaction. Why do you think that women are shamed if they talk positively about their bodies? <laughs> this this is an excellent question. Um, I suppose particularly in Australia, you're you're never meant to be sort of uh, proud of anything you do or you're almost viewed as up yourself, I think, if you say that you're happy with how you look, how you present, things like that. So I think it's a more normative and more acceptable thing to actually bag yourself. It is. It's so normal. It's, it happens all the time. Exactly. I think we do it in every facet, but particularly women and appearance, you can, you really, you can't say anything good about yourself. If someone else says something nice about you, that's okay, but you're not the one to lead that conversation saying, I think I look hot today. Yeah, but if somebody does say you look hot today, you're like, no, 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 I'll put on three kilos or some nonsense. Yeah, exactly. Oh, no, my bum still looks really big. There's always a, a negative response to it. It can't be, yeah, thanks. Yeah. I'm curious about this. Culturally, what's considered the ideal for a woman's body right now? I think it differs via culture. The Western ideal, sort of Western ideal for appearance, is at the moment considered to be an athletic ideal. So thinness isn't even enough anymore. You need to be thin, but also toned. So that's things like having a six-pack abs, having biceps that you can see. So you've got to be dead skinny, but also toned. And in addition to that, you still need to have womanly assets, like having the bigger boobs, the bigger butt, kind of like a, a Kardashian, I suppose. So toned in the right places, womanly in other places and you can imagine that's I mean I think this is probably the hardest ideal in the history of appearance ideals for people to achieve. Really do you really think this is the hardest one? Gosh well that's I mean who knows what's to come but it it does seem to be like this is really difficult for people to achieve. Mm. Because you can't get muscles without losing your curves really can you? It is tricky, isn't it? And that might be where I suppose um, going to cosmetic surgeons, et cetera, to get breast augmentations, Brazilian butt lift, that might be what's driving that demand because people are losing their curves through going to the gym so much and they need to, I suppose, seek outside support to keep those assets. What is Snapchat dysmorphia? So uh, Snapchat, I'm sure everyone is aware, is like a social media platform and they were the first to actually implement photo editing filters. So things like, you know, putting dog ears on yourself, putting a crown of flowers on, etc. And Snapchat dysmorphia is considered to be when people edit their selfies using Facetune and stuff like that to improve their appearance. 
And then they go to cosmetic surgeons, plastic surgeons, and ask to look like their filtered photo. Wow. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then, of course, the cosmetic surgeon, they have to say, you know, if they're an ethical person, that I can't actually make you look like that. That's a photo editing application. You know, it's, it's thinned down your nose, it's cleared up your skin, it's brightened and widened your eyes. These are all things that aren't easily achieved through surgery. It's a real growing issue because before people would take in pictures of celebrities saying, make me look like Kim Kardashian, but now they're taking in pictures of themselves. Mm. In our sensible, rational brains, we know what Dr Gemma says is right. This look, it's unachievable. It's ridiculous we compare ourselves to Victoria's Secret models. Their whole gig is to look perfect. Like, think about all the time you put into going to work and doing your job. They put that time into looking good because that's their work and that's their job. And then combine that with their freakishly good-looking genes. It's just not realistic for us. But these messages of thinness, fitness and physical perfection are everywhere. And as a result, some women develop an unhealthy relationship with what they eat. Why are you doing this to yourself? You don't need to eat. Why are you eating? Why? This is Audrey. She's 61 and immigrated here from South Africa when she was a teenager. Why are you going to the cupboard? Why are you taking this out of the cupboard? You know you don't need it. It's dinner time soon. But then I ignore that voice. Audrey has an eating disorder. More than 900,000 Australians have one. No surprises, the majority of people who have eating disorders are women. In Audrey's case, she's an emotional eater or a binge eater. She's been to therapists for years but continuously beats herself up about what she eats. At 61, she's got terrible body image. It's a lifelong battle. Food seems to have such a controlling... It's such a controlling part of my life. I really wish it wasn't. But don't forget, this has been going on. I've had... I've had an eating disorder probably since I was a teenager and I'm now 61. So that's 90% of my life. I used to deprive myself, but I think because I've had so much counselling, thank God, it's helped me. So now I don't, if I want something, I'll have it. So if I'm out for coffee and there's a little tart or cake or whatever, I don't deprive myself and deny it, right? Okay, so you'll have it but then you can't have anything later. You've had it today, right, that's your morning tea or whatever. Whereas I didn't used to do that. The thing that really strikes me about Audrey is that even at 61, there's so much guilt about every little thing that goes into her mouth. I really thought that one of the benefits of getting older was that you finally stop giving a shit, but it's definitely not the case for Audrey. The binge food now is much more in inverted commas, healthier than it used to be. So now I won't buy chocolates and cake. It'll just be food that's at home, but more of it. So, for example, there'll be crackers and a dip. So instead of eating, for example, a half a row or one row, I might eat two rows of those packets of rice crackers where you get four rows. Yeah. And then I'll close it, pack it away. 
go and do something and then I'll head back to the kitchen and maybe have a piece of fruit. I'm not actually hungry. I might be thirsty. So I'll have some water then. Okay, now you've had water, you've had the apple and you've had half a, uh, you know, half a packet of crackers plus the, some of the dip and still doesn't stop. So, okay, so here's what I'm hearing. You, you uh, eat fairly healthy food and maybe you're down on yourself because you eat too much of it, but it's, mm. you're not really doing any, any damage. But there's a huge amount of chatter in your mind about the food choices yes. that you're making that seems to span your whole day from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed. It, does that sound right? That sounds 100% right. That's so true. How do you think food became your coping mechanism? I think because it's, it's easily accessible. It's, it's in the house and... Um, and I think because women spend a lot of time talking about food, I think that's also part of it. But I think because it's readily available, it's the only thing I remember as a teenager, it was the only thing that really gave me pleasure. There is so much pleasure in eating food. It can be comforting and yummy, social, and is like pretty much my favourite thing to do. But so many women have an issue with food. What we put in our mouths is so loaded, it seems like eating is almost never just about nutrition, sustenance or enjoyment. It's often deep fried in so much guilt. Dr Gemma says binge eating is the most common eating disorder in Australia. The runs are on the board for women to have this kind of under-eating or overeating pattern and they're very well studied and, yes, it is very common in women for this to happen. When I think about people like aunties or, you know, sort of older female relatives, mm-hmm. it's very common for them to say, oh, no, not today, oh, you know, I can't have that cake and sort of deprive themselves and it's it's a little bit um, virtuous but also <laughs> very normal. Like it's not it's not like, God, are you okay? Why, why are you not eating the cake? So when does it go from that, which is sort of acceptable and maybe it, it's even like a, a bit of a brag, when does it cross mm. from that into eating disorders or body dysmorphia? It, it's actually a shame that sort of dismissing cake is considered normal because I think that's they're kind of the antecedents for what we would call disordered eating, which means that you're sort of you're not quite meeting the diagnostic criteria for an eating disorder. You're not full blown, but you're sort of on the way there. And so disordered eating is kind of depriving yourselves of like energy dense foods, getting rid of certain food groups. We often hear about people who don't eat carbs, etc. That is kind of getting into the realm of disordered eating. And when it becomes eating disordered is when I suppose a lot of things combine like weight loss, like heavy restriction of food. So basically cutting out almost all food groups. When people start to, for example, what we call compensation, so that's like whether they're exercising a lot, whether they start to throw up what they're eating, they're using diet pills, laxatives, like that's tapping into very much eating disorder territory. So it's kind of a spectrum and um, it's very easy to slip from, you know, dismissing a cake to getting into an eating disorder. So we should always have the cake? 
I agree. Yes. <laughs> okay. okay. Cool. I mean, I think like I, you know, when I'm talking to patients and stuff, when we think of that food pyramid, cakes, donuts, etc., they're in that pyramid. So we are meant to have them. It's just that we're not meant to have them for every single meal. Okay, so we've spoken to women who overeat or yes. binge eat. Yes. Um, and it's common when they're miserable that they scoff, just shove food into their faces. Yes. So it's a, it's an eating your feelings thing, which I can definitely relate yes. to. I think we all can, Yumi. I yeah. think we've all done that at least once in our lives. Oh, mate, at least once a day. <laughs> so where does <laughs> the... I think I may have done it this morning, in fact. <laughs> where does that psychological urge come from? Yeah. I think, and I will say that binge eating disorder is actually the most common eating disorder of all. I think we kind of forget that. I think anorexia and bulimia get a lot more airtime, but binge eating disorder is the most common eating disorder in our population. When I certainly talk to patients about it, nothing is as soothing as food is. And I think if you're psychologically distressed, food is a really quick way to try and soothe yourself. Um, And we do this from a really young age. Like you'll see like, you know, kids who are upset are given lollipops and treats and things like that. So we're almost conditioned to comfort ourselves with food from a really young age. And it's not surprising that adults will do that as well when they're feeling distressed. So does that apply when people eat if they're nervous or anxious? Absolutely, yeah. You're just trying to calm calm your body down and food normally does the trick. Can you just help me to uh, get my head around what binge eating is? Yeah, so to be a, a binge, like I suppose in terms of our like psychological diagnostic criteria, it needs to be like an objectively large amount of food consumed in a short time. So other people need to think it's a large amount of food as well. Mm -hmm. And it also needs to feel out of control to you as well. Like you felt like you couldn't stop it. Like almost some people talk to me about it being almost out of body that they, um, they're just like, I just needed to shovel it all in as fast as I could. We always talk about like impacts on your life and stuff like that. You know, is it, um, maybe preventing you in your relationships, in your work? Are you spending large amounts of money on food for your binges? Like, is it sort of being problematic for you in the wider scope of your life? Oh, I knew. I knew something was terribly wrong. This is Yan. She's in her 30s and has two young kids. Like Audrey, Yan has terrible body image. After a bad breakup, Yan's self-esteem and body image took a battering. She developed anorexia, and it nearly killed her. As I lost more weight, especially when I was around 33, 34 kilos, I... uh, Every time I stood on the scale and I could see the number drop, my heart would sort of sink because I knew I was in deeper trouble. (laughs) But I couldn't get myself out of it. A part of me felt elated that, well, my ED part of me would have felt elated that I was losing weight. But the rational side of me was concerned that I was going to die. For Yan, food became the enemy. I was living by myself for the first time and trying to take care of myself. I guess I wasn't managing. I I felt like I didn't fit in. I felt 
I felt like it must ha- must be me. Something's wrong with me. So maybe it's my weight. Maybe if I lost a little weight, I I would I would be better. I'll be okay. Um, I guess that's the sum of it. So what happened? Did you start to lose weight, and then it just kind of was a self fulfilling prophecy or or a cycle? I started losing the weight quite rapidly because I was like diving head in, and then I sort of maintained lowish weight but acceptable like it wasn't as in like you know I didn't look like a walking bag of skeletons but yeah I maintained that weight for a really really long time so I still had very disordered behaviors I just it just wasn't medically out of hand at that stage so when you say you were very thin like mm. what would you see that when you looked in the mirror yes definitely I I mean at that time I was like I wasn't too bad. I wasn't like emaciated or really, really sick. But I knew that something didn't look right. And yet it, it got worse. It did. It actually got worse much, much later when I started working. And I don't know, I guess I, I, I have a very obsessive personality. I start something and I need to go like 120%. Otherwise, I'm pissed at myself because I'm like, angry that I didn't do the best I could. But in the same time, ruining myself whilst I'm trying to do be this perfect person, I suppose. When did you realise it was anorexia? I didn't. Not until I, I was in the hospital. And by that time, I was like 28 kilos. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what it was. I'd never really even heard about anorexia. And I was in the hospital. And that's when the psychologist there told me that I had anorexia and I was like, no, you've got to be joking. Like, <laughs> no, this is not. This is just, you know, over-enthusiasm on my part. Um, and yeah, so it was really, really hard to take that in. Uh, part of me felt relieved that, okay, well, maybe there is something wrong. But part of me felt like, no, this this couldn't be. It couldn't be. How could you get to 28 kilograms and not realise something was wrong? Oh, I knew. I knew something was terribly wrong. I could barely walk some some days. I There was so much pain and I just, I just felt tired. Like I just wanted to sleep for a long time. But I kept going. I, I couldn't stop. It was essentially I needed someone else to stop me. Yeah, and this episode's about body image. When you were at the worst of your anorexia, what did you see in the mirror? Um, I saw a skeleton. Um, it's funny because a lot of people say to me, oh, especially with a normal sort of an- description of anorexia, you look at yourself and you think, oh, I'm fat. I, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't see that actually. I could see how scarily skinny I was, but I felt disgusted. I felt disgusted, and. The only way I could handle that disgust was to keep punishing myself, whether it be through exercising or not eating. What what made you feel disgusted? Everything. I looked at myself and I was like, well, you don't even look good when you're skinny. Mm. <laughs> and this was the whole reason you started it, didn't? wasn't it? Like, well, I guess this is my ED talking when I was, you know, back then. And I was like, you, you started this to lose weight and you still look like shit. So you're kind of fucked either way. You don't look great when you're not skinny. You don't look great when you're skinny. So like, 
seriously, what are you going to do? <laughs> so that was pretty much what was playing in my mind the whole time. And I, I, I didn't know what to do except to just keep going down this course because that was the only thing I seemed to know how to do. Yan was eventually admitted to hospital. She resisted initially, but realised her life was on the line if she didn't cooperate. I guess the biggest thing that got me through was... was a desire to live. At that moment in time when I was in hospital, the thing that kept me going was I just... I just I just wanted to get out of there and I didn't want to die in there. I think that was the biggest thing. And the only way to get out was to gain the weight. It was hard. Uh, Many times I thought like, I think just killing myself would be much easier than this. But, But I didn't want to. Yan's battle with anorexia is ongoing in that she says her body image is never going to be great, but she's really conscious to try to send body-positive messages to her own two kids. And I think we should be sending these body-positive messages to ourselves too, because clearly so many of us need to hear them. These are some of Dr Gemma's practical tips on how to improve our body image stuff that I teach is things like function over form. And by that, I mean sort of appreciating the amazing things our body does for us and not just about the sort of outer shell it comes in. So I I just think about how amazing it is just that our body like digests food without us even thinking about it, that we're sitting here breathing. These are amazing things. Our body has been designed to be awesome. And I think these are things we forget a lot about. So, you know, our body allows us to exercise, it allows us to love people, it allows us to have fun sex, all these kinds of cool things. And and that has nothing to do with how we look, does it really? Mm. Like, so function over form, definitely. I do think, um, I was talking a bit before about mindfulness and I think mindfulness has had, you know, there's tons of benefits of mindfulness, not just in this body image space, but in sort of psychological health in general, like just, you know, being present in the moment, non-judgmental awareness. I think that is a skill we can all benefit from. And um, something else that I like to teach too is uh, a self-compassionate approach. And I don't think women are very good at being self-compassionate in general, but in particular about their appearance. I mean, that's where fat talk comes in really, Mm. doesn't it? There's no compassion in that. I always talk about, you know, this kind of narrative we have in our head, like I'm ugly, I'm not good enough, I need to be better. You would never say that to a friend, would you? Like, let me try it. You're ugly. Oh, thanks. <laughs> you're <Julie>. ugly. <laughs> you're fat. You need to be better. No, that would that definitely would not come out of my mouth. No. Yes, but we say that to, stuff to ourselves all the time, don't we? Yeah. Like that, our internal dialogue is very, very different. And so I talk about being sort of a compassionate friend. Talk to yourself like you would talk to a friend, because you would never say anywhere near the stuff that you would say to yourself. I've got a tip for you too. If you're having a shit day, for God's sake, don't follow impossibly attractive people on social media. It'll only make you feel worse. Take a leaf out of Bree's book. She's in her mid-twenties, lives in Melbourne and has been a size 12 to 14 for most of her adult life. She's grappled with body image. Her tip, follow body positive accounts on Instagram. Instagram gets a really bad rap. 
But one thing that has really, really helped me is body positive accounts on Instagram. The propaganda, it really works. Like seeing bigger boned girls just wearing whatever they want, looking sexy and confident, it really has helped me. Even if my jeans maybe have one little roll, I would like change the jeans or put a big, you know, baggy jumper on. But now like seeing women embrace their curves and their rolls and their cellulite has just like changed my life. Like it's just gotten into my like subconscious almost. I am more than just, you know, my flabby stomach. Like it really doesn't matter. What I look like doesn't determine how valuable I am or how intelligent I am. And I can contribute so much more to society and have more fun in life if I'm just not just focusing on my body. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you're a size 16, size 20, size 6. What you look like is not important. Who you are and what you do and what you contribute to the world is so much more important. And it's also taught me to be kind to my body too. Like my body is part of me. It's not a separate entity. So if I'm mean to my thighs, like I'm being mean to myself. And what Brie is talking about is a movement that's growing. It's not body positivity so much as body neutrality. Google it. It's not about loving and celebrating every little bit of yourself so much as just accepting it and moving on to more important things. Ladies We Need to Talk is mixed by Anne-Marie de Betancourt, whose hobby is playing football. This episode was produced by Cassandra Steeth, who is an outstanding gardener and ocean swimmer, and Tamar Cranswick, who bakes like Martha Stewart, but better. <laughs> Supervising producer was Madeline Jenner, also another accomplished baker and craftswoman, and Alex Lolbach, whose hobby is keeping chickens alive. <laughs> Our executive producer is Justine Kelly, whose hobby is spotting swear words in scripts, and this series was created by Claudine Ryan, who does beach walks and writing. This podcast was produced on the lands of the Turrbal, Yugambeh, Gurungara and Gadigal peoples. Ladies, if you're worried that your own self-criticism might have rubbed off onto your kids, or... You need some advice on how to help the small ones in your life accept their bodies? Check out the Parental as Anything episode about teaching your kids body positivity. Very small children are just absorbing the world like a sponge. And the main way that they learn is through repetition. So if they exist in a house or in a school where they hear lots of people complaining about their bodies, they start to emulate that behaviour. Find Parental as Anything on the ABC Listen app and wherever you find great podcasts. Let Maggie Dent help your child love themselves just the way they are.